As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I think it's really funny how obvious whose Amazon shopping items are whose. Like when you look at our cart, yeah. it is a real, it's a, it's a interesting mishmash, if it, you will. You can definitely tell whose stuff is whose. Yeah, I never thought about that. But uh, yeah, an impartial person looking at our Amazon orders list would go, <laughs> yep, cat that one. She ordered the dog toys. Jethro, on the other hand, the Art Deco speaker covers. <laughs> Lately, mine has been all like uh, violent keychain type things because the... The last time that we were at the airport, my keychain was taken away. And the time before that, uh, I lost my keychain at the courthouse. Uh, and it's, you know, you already feel so weird when you go to the courthouse. And I don't know, maybe it's just me. Like, I can't have to go to court ever, even if I'm totally you're, not at fault. Yeah, right. You're and the, not you, feel guilty. You're the plaintiff. Right. I, I understand. Yeah. You, I went for jury duty and I felt guilty. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It is a weird feeling. It yeah. is. You're there because uh, you've not done anything wrong. I was doing my civic duty. You're doing your civic duty. <laughs> and yet you still feel guilty yeah. somehow because you're in the courthouse. I think it's the same uh, way that I feel about like leaving a store without having purchased anything. <laughs> I, <laughs> I always feel like... Uh, They'll think that I've stolen something or they're insulted that I haven't purchased something. <laughs> so so you're afraid they're either going to uh, be offended that you, you couldn't find wares worthy of your purchasing right. or that you're a, a thief. Yes, exactly. Okay. It's even worse at a yard sale. Oh, oh. my God. You're so right about that. <laughs> Leaving a yard sale. What is it? You were gesturing wildly there and he saw your shadow on the wall. <laughs> Willie, come on. Leaving a yard sale without buying something is the worst feeling. It absolutely is. Because really what you're saying is, I don't want any of your shitty stuff. No, nothing that you have interests me. It's Thank you. It's far beneath my personal tastes. <laughs> what am I even doing in your yard? Sometimes if I go to a yard sale and it's like, let's say, a cute elderly couple, mm. I feel obligated to buy something. 
even if I just buy it and throw it away. I want to. I want to be nice. Yeah, you don't throw things away. Wait, now you're making me out to be like a hoarder, and I am not a hoarder. I'm a collector. <laughs> That's what hoarders say. I need all this stuff. To live. <laughs> anyway, did you find your replacement punchy knuckle things? Um, I haven't yet. I can't decide on one. So many different styles to choose from. <laughs> well, I get to go first today. Oh, yay. On September 2nd, 1944... A squadron of U.S. Navy Avenger aircraft appeared over Japan's Bonin Islands. I'm sorry, Bonin Islands? Well, it could be Bonin, but I thought Bonin would be funnier. It's B-O-N-I-N. How would you say that? Oh, I'd definitely say Bonin. I know. That's why I love you. So this squadron was tasked with destroying a radio station on a very, very small island called Chichijima. To give you an idea of how small this island was, it was about twice the size of Central Park Okay. in New York City. And they were there to destroy a radio station. Right. Did they run Bob and Sherry? Because yeah. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Before they could complete their mission, Japanese soldiers on the island uh, began an intense anti-aircraft attack. Um, the counterattack was successful. They uh, they shot down nine U.S. pilots and, and, and airmen. Eight of them were captured. Only one escaped. Years later, in 2003, the pilot that did escape told CNN the plane, the plane was burning. The cockpit was beginning to fill up with smoke. The plane was, I thought, I, I thought it was going to explode. I dove out onto the wing of the plane, oh. but not as far as I should have. Then I pulled the ripcord to my parachute too early, and what happened was I hit my head on the tail of the horizontal stabilizer of the plane, and it didn't take long before I was in the water. Now, according to the telegraph, the pilot survived because he ditched his plane further from the island than the other crew members did, and uh, he managed to scramble onto a, a life raft and paddle away from the island, whereas his fellow crew members and and um, and peers paddled toward the island. At that time, American planes launched a hail of fire at the Japanese boats and the Japanese troops on the island, uh, which had uh, set out to capture him. Uh, they, they were able to drive the Japanese back, and he was eventually rescued by a submarine. So when you're rescued by a submarine, is that like, do they just tootle up to the sh- to the top of the water and open up the hatch and you hop on? Like, yeah. is that how that works? I it, mean, it's... A, it kind of is. Like, in my head, it feels very cartoonish, but is that how that happens? Well, the pilot said, when the black hull of the USS Finback surfaced in front of me, I thought I was hallucinating. Uh, he told um, a, a researcher in a television film that he had been vomiting and bleeding from his head wound. I can imagine that was a pretty nasty gash. I'm sorry. He was vomiting in the water yeah. that he was swimming in? Yeah. Oh. He was just paddling through his own vomit. That is kind of nasty to think about, but but that's what bothers you more than that gaping head wound that he, he received from bashing his head on the, on the rear of the plane as he was ejecting? Yeah, well, puke. Anyway, he goes. He would go on to be awarded the Distingu- Distinguished Flying Cross. Now, the other eight servicemen, not so lucky. And this was not known until recently. 
While researching his book, Flyboys, the results of author James Bradley's historical detective work, he was able to uh, piece together the horrific truth from various secret transcripts of the war crimes trial. So I'm sorry, just clarify, there were nine soldiers all on this plane, and the one that was puke swimming was the only one that didn't make it to the island. Uh, well, I think there were three planes. Oh, okay, I'm three, sorry. Three people on each plane. Got it. There were nine total. One guy got away. The other eight were captured by okay. the Japanese. Okay, thank you for clarifying. Not a problem. Now, according to the secret transcripts of the war crimes trial that were given to the author, James Bradley, by a former officer and lawyer who was an official witness at the time, one of the eight captured on the island by the Japanese was the radio operator. His name was Marv Mershon. Now, he was marched to a freshly dug grave, blindfolded, made to kneel for beheading by a sword. This is according to the testimony by a Japanese soldier named Iwakawa. And this again at the war crimes trial. Quote, when the flyer was struck, he did not cry out, but just made a slight groan. The next day, a Japanese officer, Major Suio Matoba, hosted a sake-fueled feast for officers, including the commander-in-chief of the island. And he included a very rare delicacy. Human flesh. Oh. According to the court records, um, a Japanese medical orderly helped the surgeon prepare the ingredients for the, uh, the feast. Dr. Taraki first took out the guy's liver, and then he removed a piece of flesh from the flyer's thigh, weighing about six pounds, measuring four inches wide, about a foot long. That's not a typical thing, though, with Japanese, though, is it? No, I would venture to guess this was an isolated incident. I can't recall ever hearing other stories of, of this type of activity. Anyway, another crew member, Floyd Hall, he met a similar fate. Admiral Kenizo Mori, the senior naval officer on Chichijima, uh, he told the court that Major Matoba brought another delicacy to a party at his quarters, a specially prepared dish of liver. According to the witness, Matoba told him, I had it pierced with bamboo sticks and cooked with soy sauce and vegetables, and they ate it in very small pieces, believing it was, quote, good medicine for the stomach. A third victim of cannibalism, his name was Jimmy Dye. Uh, he'd been put to work as a translator after he was captured, and this went on for several weeks. But after a three- or four-week period, Captain Shizuo Yoshi, who was later tried and executed, called for the airman's liver to be served at a party for fellow officers. And parts of a fourth airman, Warren Earl Vaughn, were also eaten. And the remaining four were executed uh, one by being just clubbed to death. Oh. Well, Japanese officers responsible for these atrocities would eventually reveal their actions at the war crimes trial in Guam and be executed for them. The families of the victims would never know precisely how their loved ones died. That's they, probably for the best. Yeah. The U.S. decided to label the files recounting the soldiers' last days as top secret, mm. preventing the families from realizing the horrible way that they had uh, they had perished. It wasn't until Bradley published Flyboys in 2003 that the uh, that the general public would learn what became of the pilots. It wasn't until 2003. Wow. 
the parents of all the airmen that perished were now dead themselves. Mr. Bradley, though, contacted other family, surviving family members. He said their first reaction was a stunned silence. Yeah. A hush. But I think that at last knowing how these men died, however horrible their deaths, has allowed closure. And in a word, I heard from them healing, he said. Now, the only pilot out of the nine shot down to escape remembers being pulled aboard the submarine. He asked himself, I wonder if I could have done something different. Why me? Why am I so blessed? Why am I still alive? Mm, that's got to be hard. The name of that pilot was George Herbert Walker Bush, who went on to become the 41st, 41st president of the United States. I knew that I recognized at least part like this, this idea, but I didn't. Almost, I didn't know all the details. Somebody almost ate him. Wow. He was 20 years old oh, at the time. I think about the the ages that that people are going to war at, and they're just babies. Oh, yeah. And I was such an idiot at 20. Well, they, they say the average age of the soldier in Vietnam was 19. Oh. No, 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 19, 19. Destruction, no, 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 19. It's an obscure 80s pop song for you. Paul Hardcastle and 19. That sounds terrible. The strange thing about that song, you know, it was about 19-year-olds dying in Vietnam, mm -hmm. but it had a hell of a dance beat. That is really weird. Yeah. My favorite war song is uh, 1916 by Motorhead. Well, there you go. It's that, magical. It's hard to dance to that, though. Really, truly. Easy to cry to, though. Mm -hmm. You're looking for a cry? Listen to 1916 <laughs> by Motorhead. Indeed. I got my information from allthingsinteresting.com, oh. the, uh, the Telegraph, CNN, and the book Flyboys by James Bradley, and we will put that on our Goodreads page. Wow. There well you go. done. Thanks, my love. Obviously, I had heard that uh, George Bush was the survivor of a plane crash during mm -hmm. World War Two. Two. Mm -hmm. But I did not know that he was the only survivor of those. I mean, I didn't know any of that. That's nuts. Did Had you heard that his uh, fellow airmen, some of them had been cannibalized? Had you heard that? No. I guess the author in 2003 delivered that news to George H.W. Bush. Oh. And he said that the response, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said basically uh, when he told uh, former President Bush the news, he just um, sat there quietly mm. and very stoically and said something to the effect that uh, – those were great men and they served their country well, something to that effect. Jeez. I mean, here's the guy. He felt guilty, I think, because of course. he was the only one to survive. And then to find out that this happened. Yeah. Whoa. Anyway, there you go. That's nuts. And now, that thing in the middle. Here are some ridiculous workplace rules that real people shared. Number five. At my old job, you had to stand in a very specific area while eating so they could see you on camera. Mm. You worked for a fetishist. Yeah, I was just going to say that's, <laughs> that sounded really like a, an odd fetish. Number four, workers weren't allowed 
to talk to each other outside of work. Oh, that's a way to encourage workplace bonding. <laughs> Number three, pens from the supply closet were only available with the out-of-state boss's permission. That sounds about right. Number two, ambulance drivers for one particular company weren't allowed to turn left. Yes, apparently some mini-boss uh, that worked there had decided he had heard that UPS trucks didn't turn left because I guess there more accidents are caused when trucks are turning left. Uh, so he, he decided that they were going to do that with the ambulances. Now, the guy goes on to say, I don't know if UPS trucks turn left or not, or if it's beneficial for them to not turn left. Frankly, I don't care. The point is, I drive a goddamned ambulance. I will turn left if I need to. Oh, wow. And number one, business casual attire was mandatory, even when working from home. Wait, what? Business dress codes even applied when you were working from home. They used to Skype in to check. Oh, my God. That reminds me of when I worked at a radio station a long time ago, and you could not wear double-stitched clothing at work. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't allow jeans. They wouldn't allow any type of pant that has double-stitched seams. So specific. Except when you went out to do a public appearance. Then you could wear trash clothes. So while you were at the radio station, no, where nobody could see you, mm -hmm. you had to dress appropriately. But when you went out, then you could slum it up. Yeah. Yeah. That was the same company that used to fine us for that. <laughs> They'd fine us a quarter if we wore jeans and it was supposed to go into a, a, a big pool for a, a party. Mm -hmm. And so when I first started there... They would give me, giving me crap about it. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm coming in to do a radio show. I don't need to be wearing single stitched seam pants. It's ridiculous. Well, that'll be 25 cents. So I gave him $40 and said, here you go. This ought to, this ought to last me for a while. I worked for the same place for a short period of time and would find amazing ways to meet the dress code and yet look like garbage. <laughs> Example, I, please. I would often wear a Lemmy Rules shirt tucked into very, very short skirts. <laughs> to appease people, they at one point decided that they would have every last Friday of the month casual day. I took that opportunity to rent a tux. <laughs> they hated me. And not without reason, I might add. Oh, no, you deserve that. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off 
plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout. And you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com oddities. That's greenlight.com oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All stories on the box of oddities are true, and some of them actually happen. Got a message from Allie. She's uh, talking about the episode that you did on Kitty Smith. She was the, uh, the woman who did not have arms, but made so many great accomplishments, did, doing things like building bookcases and painting and... The armless dynamo. Yeah, that's what they called her. Yeah. (laughs) Allie says, hearing about Kitty's story made me feel so ashamed slash embarrassed forever complaining about anything. Yeah, Mm -hmm. us us too, Allie. Her accomplishments far exceeded that of most who have arms, let alone she had no help from either another person nor any prosthetics and still not only managed but excelled. 
all during an age when women had none to little opportunity for much more than popping out babies and ironing shirts. It's true. It really does help put things in perspective. But at the same time, and I think this is important, uh, one of my friends, Erica, tells me all the time that just because someone has different struggles than you do doesn't mean that your struggles are not valid. It's like the whole uh, first world problems thing. Right. Yeah, there's still problems, though. And it just because somebody else has worse problems doesn't mean that your problems aren't valid. Allie goes on to say, why am I too lazy to change out of my PJs and comb my hair before going to the grocery store? And why is everybody else in their PJs with uncombed hair? I can't wear my PJs to the grocery store. You've never worn PJs? Well, you've worn sweats. I've worn sweats. Yeah. I guess when I think of PJs, I think of sweats. I guess technically I don't really have PJs. I just have sweats. So I had a coworker for a period of time who was wearing sweatpants to work one day, and I, you know, wagged my finger and I was like, oh, you know, that's against the rules. Mm-hmm. And she was like, why? Um, I said, you know, the rules that say if, if it's something you would wear to the gym, then you're not allowed to wear it to work. And she went, oh, that's okay. I don't go to the gym. <laughs> she had it figured out. It's <laughs> like, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. What you got for me? Oh. Yeah. It's a kind of like a sassy, jazzy version of it. I feel like that's the tune that would play on a keyboard that came, you know, came with the keyboard. With the pre-programmed drum tracks yeah. in it. Yeah. It's like the rumba setting on an old Hammond organ. Yes, exactly. Wait. Yes. Wait. <laughs> what you got for me? Oh, okay. So, um, take a moment. Prepare yourself. This is terrible. <laughs> so, August. Nope. Wrong month entirely. So, it's December 31st, the year 2000. Ashi Giano went next door to her daughter's house in the neighborhood of Setagaya in the western suburbs of Tokyo. So, wow. Yeah, I know. We just did an episode where I did a story about Russia, and then you did a story about Russia, and yeah. now I did a story about that involved Japanese soldiers, and oh, this is weird. I know. We're connecting on many levels. Yeah. We do live together, though. Mm -hmm. Let's keep that in mind. That's an advantage. All right. So mom had tried calling her daughter and family um, and found that she wasn't able to get through. And so that made her kind of suspicious. So she went next door. She rang the doorbell and nobody answered. The door was locked from the inside. So grandma used her set of keys to open the door. Inside, she discovered the scene that would launch one of the largest, most involved murder investigations in Japanese history, involving over 246,000 investigators who've collected almost 13,000 pieces of evidence. Mikio Miyazawa, who was 44 years old, and his 41-year-old wife, Yasuko, they had an eight-year-old daughter, Nina, and six-year-old son, Ray. They were all dead inside. Miyazawa's son had been strangled, and the other three had been stabbed to death. The killer then spent some length of time inside the home, leaving enough evidence to baffle authorities and the nation. So Mikio Uh, worked for Interbrand. It was a London-based consulting firm. His wife was a teacher. They had two kids. 
And they were living in this neighborhood that was mostly abandoned. There was a park nearby, and that had recently expanded. It was a skate park. It was kind of loud. A lot of people didn't like the added uh, noise, so they were moving out of the neighborhood. So they lived in this neighborhood, uh, basically just them and Yasuko's mom lived next door. Um, There's... Yasuko's sister lived nearby, and then there was another house across the street. And a bunch of skaters. And a bunch of skaters. Very loud skaters. Yeah. So when the family moved there in 1990, the development held 200 families. But by the time this crime occurred, four houses were occupied. Wow. So it was a really noisy skate park. (laughs) It sounds like it was. The Miyazawa family had plans to move as well. Hmm. Right in the next couple of months... That's amazing that loud skaters drove an entire community out. Yeah. Just drove them out. 200 houses? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So investigators were able to determine that the killer had entered through the bathroom window. Footprints from the criminal were found below the window as well as broken tree branches just below it. Apparently, the killer had climbed the chain link fence, the chain link fence beneath the window, and gained entry there, um, knocking some branches off in the process. So when he got inside, uh, he smothered the six-year-old boy oh. in his sleep. Uh, oh my god! In his bunk bed, it was just the first one that he came across. Um, he had with him a sashimi knife, as well, but um, for some reason, just smothered the boy. What What is a sashimi knife? Sashimi is, uh, it's like sushi. It's, oh. it's the, the fish, the I think fish. it's the fish specific part okay. of sushi. So it's like a serrated? No, it's a very thin. Um, oh, okay. Like, like you fillet with. Yeah. Okay. So probably having heard a commotion, um, dad came and found the killer having just smothered his son and the two fought. Uh, the killer had stabbed dad multiple times, uh, damaging his knife in the process. Dad's body was found lying at the bottom of the stairs to the second floor. Wow. Uh, the killer then attacked Yasuko and eight-year-old Nina. At some point during the murder of mom and daughter, he had to go and get another knife because he had damaged his knife, killing dad. So he went to the kitchen, got one of Yasuko's own knives, and murdered her with it. Investigators noted that uh, Yasuko and Nina's wounds were much more savage and plentiful than the stab wounds to dad. Um, And that led them to believe that the suspect had a hatred of women. Sure. and Overbearing um, mother kind of situation that you hear a lot about in movies. In movies. Right. Uh, Based on their stomach contents, the time of the family's death was placed at around 11.30 p.m. So the killer's in the house. The family is dead. But he hung around and he helped himself to items in the fridge. Uh, There was some beer in the fridge. The killer didn't take that. So that leads police to believe that uh, he doesn't drink. But he did eat some melon, uh, drank some barley tea. No. He ate some popsicles. Did he have to cut the melon up? And did he use a different knife? Um, That's not noted, I would assume. Yeah. 
Why does my mind immediately go to that? I don't know, but that's upsetting. Is there something wrong with me? I think so. So he wandered around the house as he ate the popsicles, uh, discarding wrappers in the kitchen trash can and also in the study uh, where he discarded two other wrappers. After going through some personal documents, the killer sat down in his uh, victim's chair and logged into the computer. Oh, good Lord. You know, just the, the whole mental image that you are painting eloquently with words, by the way. Thank you. I'm just picturing this guy, blood splattered, yeah, walking around with a broken knife, eating popsicles, throwing the wrappers on the floor and just rummaging through their drawers. It's just such a bizarre mental image. It's very upsetting. Um, he browsed the internet for a while. Checking his Facebook. and He visited the site of the Shiki Theater Company and attempted to buy tickets to see a show. What? Um, wow. Yeah. This sounds like somebody who maybe knew them if he felt that comfortable in the house or just a psychopath, I, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. The theater company's website was bookmarked. Um, by Mikio. So the killer would have logged on, seen this bookmark, checked it out, and decided to try to buy tickets. <laughs> I don't so know. Weird. It's very strange. Um, again, he sorted through credit cards, bank books, driver's licenses, and other personal information. He spread it out as though he'd been examining it all. Then again, sometime in that morning, he had gone back online, uh, visited the webpage for the company that dad had worked for and uh, Yasuko's school. And then he killed the power to the computer by pulling the power cord. So then he went to the bathroom. Uh, he pooped, did not flush. Oh, my God. And then um, apparently was going through more paperwork while in the bathroom uh, scattered papers were located in the bathroom, receipts, items from mom's school. Wait a minute. If he didn't flush, we're talking DNA, yes. right? Okay. Am I getting ahead of the story here? Well, no. That's... Okay. What the hell was going through his mind? He apparently had no concern whatsoever. None. About leaving trace evidence. He sopped up his own blood. Apparently he had injured himself during uh, one of the fights and uh, used sanitary products to help hmm. sop up the blood, left those hanging out uh, in the tub for some reason. Huh. Put a lot of garbage in the tub. Um, he had a little nap on the couch. Well, he was exhausted. Sure. And he was probably a little more than disappointed that he wasn't able to get his tickets to the touring company's performance of HMS Pinafore. So at some point during this weird post-murder hangout sesh, uh, he changed his clothes. And we know this because he left the clothes that he was wearing. Holy crap. Uh, that included sneakers, a dark green hip bag, kind of like a fanny pack, a black handkerchief, a hat, a scarf, a down jacket, and gloves. Okay, um, wait a minute. I'm formulating a theory. Okay. This guy is leaving false evidence you think around so? the house. He brought somebody else's clothing. Mm -hmm. He had uh, somebody else's blood and poop on him. And then he planted it strategically around the house to frame somebody. So he brought poop. He brought poop. In yeah. and his fanny pack. Well, that's why it's a fanny pack. 
Yeah. Originally, that's what they invented fanny packs for, was oh. to carry your stool samples. Sure. And so he brings this, the stool sample along with blood from the same person. Mm-hmm. How he got it, I don't know. To it, throw police off. Yeah, this is all to throw police off because he did not want people to know that he went to see the touring company's performance of HMS Pinafore. So due to the items that were left behind, police believe that the killer is 5'7", with a waist size of 32 inches, probably in his 20s or 30s. He was obviously physically fit, um, and he was dressed very skatery. Again, frame up. You think so? Well, if I was going to go kill a family, mm-hmm. which I don't think I would. Good. And I knew that there were a bunch of loud, rowdy skater kids that have been driving people out of the neighborhood. I think that that's a that's a, a perfect frame up. All you need is you know skaters' clothing and a stool sample. So DNA evidence. Uh, there was a bunch recovered from the crime scene. Uh, the killer had type A blood which showed that he had a mother of European origin. Specifically, forensic testing showed that mom was from Southern Europe, possibly somewhere around the Adriatic Sea. The killer's father was from Northeastern Asia, and the father's DNA was found to be shared with one in four or five Koreans, one in 10 Chinese, and one in 13 Japanese. Hmm. It was determined that the killer had eaten string beans and sesame seeds the previous day. They looked at this quite a bit and tried to figure out what this meant. Like and eating the string beans and the well, they thought, sesame seeds? Yeah, that those are two of the ingredients in a very specific salad. Okay. That they didn't think that a person who matches this profile would have like made up for himself. So the police believe he might be a bit of a mama's boy. Oh. Maybe still lives with his mom. Hmm. It was uh, also determined that the clothes and the sashimi knife left behind by the killer had been purchased in a very specific area of Japan. And the sweater um, that was left behind It had only gone on sale two months before the killings took place. So he leaves all of his clothing there. Did he bring a change of clothing or did he take clothing from... I don't know. That's weird. Yeah. Police learned that only 130 of that particular sweater had been sold. Uh, But they were only able to track down about 12 owners of the sweater. And they hadn't had that particular salad. That's right. Okay. In the hip bag... That was left behind. The fanny pack? That's right. Small traces of sand were found. And, of course, sand can be analyzed to find out where it came from. And it came from America. Wow. The southwest of the United States, specifically near Las Vegas. Very specifically, it was sand from Edwards Air Force Base. Okay, weird. So this could have been the kid of like a serviceman or something that was stationed in Japan? That's a very good thought. Hmm. It could have been a serviceman himself. So keep this in mind. There are five times as many murders in the States as there are in Japan. There are more murders in the United States than there are crimes committed in Japan. USA. USA. Yeah, it's great. Um, But crime is actually decreasing in Japan, especially theft. And theft does not appear to be the motive here. Um, Many valuable items and cash were not taken from the home. 
the killer may have taken about 150,000 yen. Family members weren't sure if that money was actually in the house or if that had been stored away somewhere else. It's hard to say, you know, when you keep your money, people don't know what you have. How much is 150,000 yen? It's $1,388.03. Right. So again, we don't even know if he took that or if it was in the house to have been taken. The killer also took that computer power cord. He took the cord. Yeah. All right. An old jacket was missing. All of the family's Happy New Year cards. So. Wow. It would be like, you know, taking a family's Christmas cards. It, Why? Why? Unless he had sent them a New Year's card and he mm-hmm. wanted to get rid of all the evidence. Mm-hmm. No, that doesn't make any sense. Why? It, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a very good, a very logical way of covering up things when you're leaving your poop in the toilet. I but suppose that's true. I don't know. Also keep in mind that because municipal authorities were planning on further continuing the expansion of this park that we've talked about, each of the families in the area was offered quite a bit of money to move. So was someone trying to get rid of the family uh, because they hadn't yet moved out of the neighborhood? Um, and because there was no theft and because the killer did hang out for a period of time, it doesn't make a lot of sense that the motive would have been to get something from the family. Right. Like if he had been hired to kill the family yeah, or if been... there was some sort of like revenge killing it doesn't that revenge doesn't involve eating the the family's popsicles. No, it does not unless they're the um tropical fruit ones. Those are my favorite. And that's part of your revenge plan? I would well, I wouldn't kill anybody. I'd just break in and eat their tropical fruit popsicles. So anyway, prior to the murders, Mikio Miyazawa had engaged in several heated arguments with young skateboarders who frequented the skate park behind the house. In particular, uh, an eyewitness said that he confronted teenage skateboarders for making too much noise. And one eyewitness said that he had actually done the same thing to a member of a local motorcycle gang who were hanging out in the skate park. That's a mistake. So there's all kinds of stuff, right? On the 31st, six hours after the discovery of the crime and probably seven hours after the killer had left the house, a young man was treated for a knife wound uh, around 75 miles to the north of the family's home at a hospital. The man was in his 30s and wearing a black down jacket and jeans. The station treated him for the wound, which wasn't terribly deep, and oddly... They didn't get his name. Hmm. They didn't ask how he got the wound. Uh, he was just treated and released, which seems weird, doesn't wow. it? Yeah. And that is the the best lead that police have as to who the killer might be. As of 2015, 40 officers were still assigned to the case full time. And this murder was in 1990. Holy crap. 1990? He was on the computer? In 1990? Yeah. What was he using? Like Prodigy? Oh, I'm sorry. No, this was 2000. Where was 1990? That was my last story. This was in the year 2000. In the year 2000. So as of 2015, 40 officers still full-time on the case. Every year, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department makes an annual pilgrimage to the house for memorial services. 
Many of the officers who originally investigated the case, they've retired, but they still attend the memorial ceremony every year. The house still stands. The house still stands. It's just vacant or has it been? It's vacant. Okay. The reward for information which leads to the arrest of the killer or killers has been raised to 20 million yen. And a police spokesman for the department said police will never give up until this case is solved. Good for them. Huh. Most of this uh, came from Listverse, uh, Wikipedia, of course, Japan Today, and Morbid Streak, which is a blog. Um, so a lot of the details about the clothing, especially the items found in the feces, etc., uh, were from that blog. It's terrible how this brings to light how little or how much crime we see in the States all the time, and it 15 years later, people don't still pilgrimage back to those homes. It's not... But in Japan, it's such a rarity it when, when something of this magnitude happens that it uh, it still matters. And, and you're right. Here in the U.S. We've become so desensitized to it. We're just overloaded yeah. with it. You know, the mass shootings, just to scratch the surface, it, it, it's almost like, oh, another mass shooting. What's that? nine this month yeah is as horrifying as it is you do become desensitized not because you don't care but you, because you just can't handle it anymore that input all the time mm. it's and caring about it is hard and there's it feels like there's nothing that you can do to stop it or make it better or help the families. So um, you kind of just shut down and it's like, oh, okay. If I don't think about this, it doesn't feel terrible. Mm. So that is the very strange case of the Setagaya murders. I was going to say we uh, should truly do pug snortles after that episode but they're all spun up in the other room right now because it's time to eat you've yeah. probably been able to hear them whining in the background throughout <laughs> the entire episode and for that we apologize but uh hey it's the life we lead <laughs> when it gets close to dinner time there's no shutting them up no <laughs> we thought we'd try to record an episode without them sitting under our feet to see how it went and it didn't go well <laughs> no come on banjo <laughs> Push the microphone away. All right, there you go. Banjo puck snortles. Willie's in the other room still, because Willie's a good boy, Banjo. Somebody had written in and said that as, as cute as they thought the guinea pig sounds were, that uh, it just didn't compare with the pug snortles. So there you go. And there's Willie. Yeah, time for dinner. Uh-huh. Okay. So apparently we should wrap this up. Yeah, so we will see you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. It's not even a dog noise. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com 
on Facebook at facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast, on Twitter at Box of Oddities, and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.